It's the 21st of March, 2015, and this is episode 197. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey! And we're joined today by Joshua Davis, the hopeful catalyst of the upcoming project Dynamis that sort of aims to do some interesting things with Ethereum and insurance. It's kind of a deep topic, so I'm really, I'm anxious to get into this. Thanks for joining us today, Joshua. Thank you for having me. Starting at the very, very basics, can you tell us the problem that uh, Dynamis aims to solve and why it was something that was, you know, that, that was the, the opportunity you saw in the space that is the one to go after. The unique problem that smart contracts in Ethereum are attempting to solve is just as the Bitcoin protocol solves the issue of trust between two parties that wish to send payments without a trusted third party to broker the transaction, the blockchain technology can also do something similar for smart contracts in that it solves the trust issues between individual policyholders that don't know each other personally, but would like to receive the benefits of peer-to-peer insurance. I kind of said in a more simpler way, you can say that peer-to-peer insurance using this new technology allows policyholders to pool their funds together and have a smart contract itself serve as the trusted third party. Talk about insurance in the current paradigm. Why isn't the way that we do things now as good as what it is that you're proposing? Because smart contracts abstract away a lot of the human interaction, but isn't sometimes it helpful to have human interaction with something as subjective as insurance? The one thing that you realize is is that if you go ahead and put your money into premium payments every month, you'd like to be able to rely on insurance that will pay your claim. But the ability to actually predict what a human institution will do, that can be a difficult proposition. Because what happens if your claim is particularly expensive for the insurance company to fulfill, even if your claim is a valid one? The ability for human beings to make misjudgments is quite obvious, but a smart contract must obey its smart contract code. The ability to predict what an insurance distributed autonomous organization or what an insurance smart contract would do is a lot greater than trying to predict what a human run institution for insurance would do. So your ability to predict whether or not your claim will be paid, it puts it in a different realm of security when you're talking about this new technology. So what you're saying is that while as an individual person who's broken my arm in a particularly expensive way, I might like it if even though maybe the coverage shouldn't cover it, if the coverage would cover it as the person receiving the benefit, I really, really would like that. But on the aggregate for the entire service, those sorts of choices or those sorts of, uh, you know, in the, in the heat of the moment calls can actually be very detrimental to the system as a whole. Yeah, so I think a better example would be that you do have a valid claim, but it was not a claim that was built into the models that the human-run institution created when they were trying to decide the type of risks that they were taking on and the type of premiums that would be required to cover those risks. So in the world of insurance, there's two different parts to a claim. One part is, is your claim valid? So if you have insurance for, I think the easiest is crop insurance, because that's what's actually given as an example in the Ethereum white paper. You can automate crop insurance based upon rainfall and also based upon temperature to actually be awarded the insurance is just based upon meeting a specific condition. But then 
the next part of the claim is the payout. So you have to kind of separate these two pieces in your mind. You can be qualified. And then the very next thing is, how much money will you actually get? So in the case of crop insurance, all that can be automated without any human beings really looking at a claim and coming to a decision because oracles can go ahead and gather information about rainfall and gather information about temperature. The payout is already decided ahead of time based upon, I guess you could say, the size of the farmer's crop or the amount of monthly premium payments that they're making. That is a very simple example. When you start to get to these realms such as health insurance, it becomes very complicated very quickly. We want to see, do you qualify for a claim award? And then how much would be paid out? So if an insurance company realizes you do qualify, that the way that they wrote your policy, you're eligible that they are assuming is far more than they initially anticipated, that would put them in a very difficult situation. That would put them in a bind where they would have to make a value judgment in terms of whether or not they should pay your claim. And then they have all these bureaucratic procedures by which to stall, delay. It's like borderline malevolent behavior against your claim. So there has to be a human factor in order to come to these very complex decisions about insurance that are far more complex than what crop insurance is doing. You can take that human calculation and you could basically use something like Amazon Mechanical Turk to give it to several different people for evaluation. And you can use the viewpoints of several people rather than like a single board of directors that would look at a claim and say, wow, you know, this claim is going to bankrupt us. Playing devil's advocate for a second, you know, it sounds like you're saying that in the event that a insurance company, you know, in this scenario we're talking about, is faced with the type of claim that has the potential to actually do harm to the rest of the business, you know, that if it's, 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 you know, very outsized compared to what the expectation was, and they have to essentially determine if it's better to honor the policy as it is written, or to essentially engage in self-preservation stalling tactics. I mean, is that really what we're talking about here? I'm trying to think of another scenario where it makes sense for a company to not honor the promises. I guess it, it also has to do with competition. This is sort of just the standard practice too. Right. But as a policyholder, I want two things from my insurance company. First of all, I want them to be transparent. If they could be completely transparent in how they're evaluating my claim, and if they could publish some form of every step of their consideration in in how they will evaluate my claim to be paid, then that would be helpful for me. But typically, an insurance company won't do that because it's not in their interest to do so. So transparency is is one important factor. The other important factor is predictability. What is the likelihood that my claim will be awarded? When you have smart contract code, it has to function in a certain way. It cannot disobey the code as it is written. This allows for greater predictability. And because that code is published on the blockchain, And because all the computations published on the blockchain, the level of transparency that you're getting is way above any current insurance institution as we know it today. There are really three stages in an insurance interaction. There's the initial actuarial stage, which is evaluating the risk that a particular insurance contract poses. And based on that, calculating an appropriate premium, there's an adjustment stage where you have a claim and a claim adjuster will evaluate that claim and make a payout. And if you're not satisfied with that, there's the adjudication where you can use an independent judicial system 
to enforce a claim against an insurer if you feel that it wasn't properly adjusted. So can you describe in terms of smart contracts, how the process of actuarial risk assessment and premium set, adjustment of claims and adjudication can happen? So in the actuarial stage, the most important, so we have to set a very low bar for the insurance DAO because it's a new technology and we are learning how it can be used in order to do things that have never been done before. When you want to evaluate risk, you have to ask important questions that will limit the scope of all of the initial factors or variables to be considered. So you're limiting what variables are going to affect a claim. The next thing you're doing is you need to quantify those variables in a way that can resolve to a number, right? Because the smart contracts are only going to understand one or zero, or they're going to understand a number that kind of expresses a degree of a certain value. So what I saw, like the revelation that I got while working on this project, if you are able to limit your initial variables very closely And if you are able to ask questions that resolve to either a yes or no number, that is going to greatly increase your ability to write code that works. So as far as the actuarial stage goes, you've got to, I mean, the example that I give in my white paper, the comparison between a policy for auto insurance, which has many variables, which is extremely complicated, and a policy for auto insurance glass, which would be a windshield, which has significantly less variables and is significantly less complicated in scope. Tackling the actuarial stage is a matter of simplifying a problem as much as possible, and then also choosing the right type of problems to tackle. As far as the uh, calculation of the premium goes, obviously you want to be able to pay out claims relative to the likelihood of their occurring. That can be built, again, into the smart contract code based upon predictions that the developers are going to be doing. And the adjustment stage, so when a claim is paid, again, if your foundation is solid, your ability to pay out a claim is solid. So if you've gone ahead, you've done a very careful job of screening all of your initial policyholders, looking at very specific factors, variables, and then you quantified those variables. So what you're actually looking for in terms of One, is this claim valid? Yes or no. And two, what should the payout be? So long as your variables are simple and they're extremely limited in scope, payout these claims will also be simplified. As far as adjudication goes, this is a a really interesting question. In all of the models that I'm looking at, there's no adjudication and The reason why that's so is because the way that the conclusion was reached was transparent, and the way that the conclusion was reached was predictable. Transparent because it was published on the blockchain, and every single calculation that determined the outcome of that claim was published on the blockchain. And predictable because the code could be evaluated before you ever entered into a contract, before you ever received a policy you could go ahead, reliably predict what would happen. I mean, that's why this is such an exciting new world. This is simply not possible with human institutions because they do not act predictably. Let me ask you a question, though, because I feel like at least in the, in the final answer there, kind of glossed over a couple of important things. Adjudication happens when one of the parties feels that they haven't received a fair resolution. And in every society currently, adjudication is an established right. You have the right to seek the assistance of the judicial system. 
in order to resolve something that you feel was not fairly solved. And so you, you can pile on as much transparency as you want, and you can say that everything's predictable, but the, the point being that a party that is denied and feels that this is not fair will seek and has the right under any legal system, including common law systems, to seek adjudication, to seek a judicial resolution. So then the question is, who do they seek that against? And, and, and what are the conditions around that? You can't say, well, adjudication won't happen, or we haven't considered that, because adjudication will happen. There, there are always circumstances. The importance of contracts, smart contracts included, the really interesting things in contracts don't happen when everything goes according to the contract. The really interesting things, the whole point of contracts is to deal with what happens when things don't go well between the two parties. If, if everybody agrees, then you don't really need a contract in the first place, and if everything goes well. So can you give me another go at yes, the adjudication I, question? I totally agree with you. We operate under the rule of law, and our legal system serves to protect people who may have very legitimate reasons for feeling that they were unfairly treated. In that case, there's the concept of reinsurance. My understanding is limited, but I believe that reinsurance would cover insurance companies in truly great disasters that were way outside of their models. There is the thought that you could use special types of escrows to handle the adjudication process. But when you are looking at kind of the nuts and bolts of the smart contract itself, the DAO, and how it will issue new policies and pay out claims and handle premiums. So adjudication doesn't necessarily fit within that process, except for there is, I mean, so if you know anything about Republic of Doug or Project Eris, those are consensus mechanisms that I won't say all DAOs, but pretty much every single DAO that we are going to see is going to need some of that they're building in order to establish a consensus mechanism. And it's possible that within those modules that do consensus, you could work out resolutions to this adjudication problem. But a, a much simpler way would be a module that's kind of outside the DAO that's holding escrow funds for the adjudication process to be able to proceed. And how those escrow funds would be released, I don't really know. This is really new. So the problem that I solved and all the work that I've done is just to like get the DAO, like to do something very basic, which is just issue new policies and then answer claims. The way that I've built the DAO that I'm working on, I guess I, I will say that I haven't foreseen this need, although I agree with you that there is this need. Probably I need to go back to the drawing board and pencil that in. When I was thinking about this question, it really seemed like there was kind of this, there has to be judgment, sort of complicated judgment, like you said, built in. It was really interesting hearing you talk about you know, windshield insurance because it made me think, well, okay, but that actually means that in the scenario you're describing, a car insurance wouldn't necessarily look like your whole car is insured with one policy. It might actually be that you have one policy that controls a bunch of little policies where you've got one for your windshields, one for your electronics, one for you know, all of these different, very binary things, like you said, that actually, you know, that kind of defines, well, this is what you get if your windshield breaks, because that's how much it costs to replace a windshield. Is that what you think will eventually happen? Is that what are right now very complex single policies could in fact become many, many, many policies. And then everyone, you know, someone who has the entirety of the policy will just have all of these small policies. And if I'm totally off base there, feel free to say that too. <laughs> I think you have a really good point. And that point is, as far as human computational load, people do not want to buy 100 policies. One for their windshield, that seems crazy. So that is definitely not what I am saying. That, that's not what we're hoping for or aiming for. What I'm saying is when we create the very first DAOs, we're going to have to solve an initial set of problems that are hard. And we're going to get insights based off 
of those solutions. And then we're going to be able to tackle bigger problems. It's like the Bitcoin protocol in 2009. I mean, that's kind of where we're at with insurance DAOs, right? So we just want it to be able to run without it being like DDoSed or without it having double spending issues. Sure, you're looking at proof of concept, basically, is what it sounds like at this point. Exactly. So the very future of insurance DAOs, they're not going to be like, yeah, I have 30 policies for my whole entire vehicle. That's crazy. Well, but but at the same time, though, if you have one policy that controls those 30 policies, and that makes it easy for the DAO without making it hard for the user. And again, what's a, what's the larger policy? It's just another smart contract that has ownership of all of the underlying ones. When you talk about things in this abstract way, you're like, yeah, sure, no po- no problem. It's it's going to be so. It's when you get down to like the the actual nitty gritty, the details, every single thing that needs to be evaluated. And when I say thing, I mean factor, variable, starting from your initial variables that you have to ask the policyholders, you know, do you meet this criteria, this criteria, this criteria? You've got to have another policyholder evaluate all of the various variables, factors, criterias in order to, number one, decide whether or not you're eligible for a policy, so the issuing of new policies. Number two, the issuing of new claims. There's a computational load on, you know, the person that wants to purchase a policy, and you certainly don't want to make it difficult for them. But once they become a policyholder, You can use technology in very innovative ways, but at the end of the day, the policyholders approve claims. That is why this new model is new. Now, could you perhaps like a group of policyholders that are like super policyholders where you could train them and then they would be able to do specific types of claims or they would be more competent to spend more time on claims. That is one solution. Like what you're looking to do is use an Amazon Mechanical Turk like model for the listeners that don't know what that is. It's basically micro payments for micro work, dividing a large task up into very small tasks and assigning those to people to be done. So this Amazon Mechanical Turk model allows you to ask policyholders to basically function as claims adjusters without taking up hours of their day. And I know that this is complicated, especially if you've never really looked at insurance before. I know that I'm going all over the place, but if you can realize that the very first insurance DAOs We are at the proof of concept stage. If we could just create policies for Autoglass and get like a hundred crypto nerds be like, yeah, Autoglass, I'm going to be the first policy holder for Autoglass insurance. I'm gung ho. That'd be great when you want to try to offer this to the general public. We are a long way off. It's like 2009 Bitcoin is not going to meet the needs of hardly anybody, even Bitcoin today in like 2015, we're still at like a a very relatively small handful of people, right? All around the world. It's going to be a long road before we can get to mass consumption. I believe it's possible, but just trying to do autoglass at this point. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by Shapeshift.io. With no account or sign-up required, it's the easiest way to buy or sell Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, BitShares, Ripples, and over 17 other leading cryptocurrencies. If you run a business and want to be able to accept more than just Bitcoin without building the infrastructure to maintain all those wallets, check out the Shapeshift API. If you're a multi-crypto individual who longs to spend their NXT everywhere that Bitcoin is accepted, you're in luck with the Shapeshift Lens browser extension. If your worldview of crypto goes beyond Bitcoin, do yourself a favor and check out Shapeshift.io to instantly convert altcoins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges.
Today's magic word is shield. That's S-H-I-E-L-D. Shield. You've got until the 28th of March to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. This episode is brought to you in part by another project I'm spending much of my time on, Tokenly. Tokenly is an open-source project building server-based tools to make decentralized tokens actually useful to individuals and businesses. In doing so, we create new opportunities that haven't yet been thought of, because previously, they weren't possible. If you'd like to learn more, have questions, or want to get involved, whether helping design and build tools or as an early supporter of the project, send an email to team at tokenly.co. Back to the show. So another really interesting aspect of insurance that we haven't touched on yet is risk pooling. The way insurance works is that not everyone has a claim at the same time. And when someone has a claim, they are a small percentage of the total people paying premiums. And so you can use the premiums of other people to pay the claims. So essentially, all of the people who are participating in an insurance plan or through reinsurance in a broader pool are pulling their risk together, pulling their premiums together to cover that risk, therefore spreading that risk across all of the insurance holders so that both the providers and the consumers of insurance have the ability to absorb claims. This runs into problems if the pool doesn't represent a uniform distribution of risk. For example, if it has a high concentration of homeowners in a flood zone and suddenly there's a hurricane or if a lot of very high-risk drivers sign on to a specific insurance plan and more of them have accidents than the average. So uh, can you tell us a bit about how you envision a peer-to-peer insurance plan run through a DAO, even for something as simple as auto class or shipping insurance or whatever? How do you do the risk pooling solution? What part of the peer-to-peer aspect of this helps deal with the risk pooling? Yeah, that is a a great question. And I'm so glad that other people have done far more work to answer this question and to create really pretty innovative models that apply to today's human insurance institutions. So in Germany, there's something called Friendsurance. And I believe Friendsurance has been around since 2010. And the policyholders are allowed to group themselves according to their own individual social networks. So within these groups bundled to produce pools from which deductibles are paid, policyholders are incentivized to exclude people from their own groups who would be more likely to exhaust community-shared premium funds used to pay deductibles. So I know that that's like a mouthful. Let me kind of simplify it. You have community selection, right? And it's going to result in less risky people being in these policy pools. Like your fit always gets into these auto accidents. You're not going to say, hey, would you like to, you know, enter into a policy pool with me? you know that they're going to exhaust that pool for paying out deductibles fairly quick. It's going to simplify the small claims process, and it's also going to lower premium costs. And this model is in in place today. Like The reason why we don't have it in America is way beyond me, because it is remarkable. Like This is a remarkable breakthrough for how you can use social networks, how you can use reputation systems to improve the way that insurance is currently issued. So when you're talking about adverse selection, you're talking about people that live in floodplains, you can go ahead and allow intelligence within the policyholder that insurance companies are not using. You can basically say to the policyholder, can you tell me who your most reliable friends are that would want an insurance policy? If you can bring them into uh, the policy pool, then we're going to give you uh, a discount. 
because it's going to make it way easier for us to recruit new policyholders, but also recruit policyholders that you know are reliable people that won't commit fraud. I mean, would you commit fraud against your friends? You're all going to share the same pool for paying your initial deductibles for small claims. And then at the same time, I mean, if you have a large claim that's going to exceed the pool of, of all of your deductibles, the insurance company is going to be there. You know, they're going to be like, no problem. We'll, we'll take care of you. So that is amazing. I mean, I've spent 10 to 20 hours looking into French insurance. And the more I look into it, I'm like, why do we not have this in this country? I'm baffled because it's really, it's, it's awesome. But French insurance, that's what people think of as peer-to-peer insurance. And it's still, it's not what the DAO is doing because the DAO is removing human institutions altogether. So as cool as French insurance is, it's still not true peer-to-peer. I'd rather trust complete strangers on Twitter with my insurance risk pool. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, uh, friends, yes, but uh, you know, when it comes to acquaintances, I, I sometimes find more trust in in strangers who earn it than acquaintances who just are acquaintances. Yeah. You know what I mean? I understand your point, but to be able to leverage intelligence that is in the system but just isn't being used, it is better, even if you only have like three reliable friends, and even if only one of them needs a policy similar to yours, that's still a level of intelligence that's being incorporated into the policy. And for those people that have lots of friends, more power to them. But the current standard, which is, okay, let me run your credit. Let me look at your background. And by the way, these databases have been hacked and people's identities have been stolen. We know that that doesn't work. I mean, it does work to an extent, but that's a broken system. Now, this French insurance model, the DAO can use that. So that's cool. I'm glad that we have French insurance. I'd really like to see it be used by a DAO. But it's another layer of additional information that can be used to award claims and to intelligently decide premiums, right? For me, it would be somewhat cynical, but more satisfying to have a form of kind of peer-to-peer social network snitch insurance, where what I do is I don't pick the three people I want to join the risk pool, but I explicitly tell the pool that I really, really don't want Mike to be in my pool because I've seen how Mike drives and I wouldn't even get in a car with him. That kind of example. That might be even more useful, but I'm just kidding. I think all of these are interesting, but from a peer-to-peer perspective, quite honestly, I think the possibility of having very broad-based risk pools that are geographically independent and diversified, where you have a level of randomization of selection that removes the kind of correlation risk that that occurs in correlated risk pools and spreads the risk over a large group of peers, especially if these peers have some kind of decentralized form of claim adjustment and decision-making. I think that's an even more powerful idea. You don't give that up, though. See, that's the really cool thing about French insurance is, is that you basically have two levels. The first level is just, there are some people I know, and even that's not even a requirement. As an individual, you can be your own unit joining into these policy pools. But for paying out small claims, it's going to simplify that process. And then also for fraud reduction, it will simplify that process. Just like you said, we want a well-distributed, diverse group of people. Well, now what we're doing is we're, we're clumping people that are somewhat similar in terms of if a feather flock together, they're my friends, uh, we have similar values. So now you have pools of people, and they're all still going to be collected together into the same policy. But the real question is, would you commit fraud 
knowing that it would be detrimental to your friends because at the end of the year what will happen is if you guys haven't used up your initial small claims deductible pool then that's going to be paid back to you as a rebate the incentive to not commit fraud against people that you care about is built into that system to the friend insurance system and we don't have that typical insurance today so I don't know if I answered your question, but you are getting the benefits of this huge, large group of policyholders uh, distributed over age and area. But at the same time, you're also getting the benefit of these social networks. Yeah, we know from uh, social sciences that where, for example, borrowers group together uh, in borrowing clubs, and and this is something we see in various peer-to-peer lending solutions. Certainly, we've seen it in, in traditional peer-to-peer lending, and traditional meaning they're less than a decade, but more than three years old. Uh, lending Club or Kiva, which track default rates across very large numbers of people who are all engaging in this kind of peer-to-peer lending environment, not Bitcoin, just traditional US dollar or fiat-based lending. One of the interesting results out of that has been that when people group together in a community-based club to borrow funds for something, the additional element of peer pressure and community pressure reduces the default rate dramatically. So if, if you are to invest in a loan for a shopkeeper versus investing a loan to a women's weaving cooperative with six members who are jointly applying for the loan the default rate on the second will be much lower. So presumably, this kind of social effect, peer pressure and community pressure for default, may also have uh, parallels in claims. However, the real issue there would be transparency, really, or privacy. Right now, if I make an insurance claim, the fact that I made an insurance claim is only known to my insurer and through various credit scoring agencies to, to others who have feeds into these insurance claims. It's not known to all of my peers. It's not known to my social circle. Do I really want the fact that you know I crashed my car at three o'clock in the morning be known to my social peers? And while that may add some protection against fraudulent claims, it also removes privacy. So there's some interesting questions there about the, the right balance between transparency and the benefits of reducing fraud. Good. Food for thought. Thank you. If you read the white paper, it actually takes these rotating credit associations or these lending circles, and it uses them as a basis for analysis for what peer-to-peer insurance might look like. If you are a big fan of lending clubs and you are ever wondering, hmm, you know, could this lending club model possibly apply to insurance? The white paper does a very initial look into how these two models map up. You can find the white paper in the show notes. Hey, Joshua, um, you know, we've been talking about this for a while and in, in sort of skirting the issue of the Dow, talking a little bit about it. Um, I'd like to take what time we have left to go through a specific example so that you can kind of explain the various steps of the process to us. Why don't we talk about just that one really simple, uh, you know, windshield insurance concept? Very first thing that you need to do is you need to be able to have a new policy application evaluated. If we're working with Autoglass, you're going to, of course, ask somebody, do you have a car? What type of car is it that you drive? You may want to exclude like the, you know, Mercedes-Benz E-Class because the windshield is not going to be $400 to replace. You do your initial exclusion to be able to decide if a new policy is a good fit, the type of insurance that's being offered. In this process, true peer-to-peer insurance it has got to incorporate the current policyholders in the issuance of new policies and in the issuance of new claims. So current policyholders actually do get assigned a new policy application and they have to look at it. They have to be able to kind of validate some very basic things such as, okay, the person scans their driver's license, 
They scanned their proof of insurance. They scanned the title for their vehicle. Then they have to just look at it and basically tell the DAO, yes, these documents look real or no, they're incomplete or they don't. It doesn't mean that fool that person. Certainly you can't, but it will cost you something. This first step is critical because what you don't want is you don't want people to attack the honest policyholders. You've got to find a way to exclude people that might be trying to scam you or commit fraud. So you've got to use some very, I would say, nuanced tactics in order to be able to solve specific problems with specific types of fraud. In the paper, I do give an example of a Sybil attack that could occur, but it would start to become impractical or invaluable when opening a claim. The policyholders requested that a phone or conversation happen where basically uh, an existing policyholder says, oh, so um, you got into an accident. I'm really sorry to hear that. But I just wanted to validate you are a human being, right? And you did have this accident. Okay, no problem. So the very first step is civil prevention. And then also, do you qualify for a new policy? The very next step is paying of premiums. Not too complicated, but you want to make sure that the developers, the programmers that wrote the policy, they do not have access to those funds. It's a very important requirement. So if you read the white paper, the argument that I'm making is basically every single step, the people that write the code cannot decide how the money is spent and they don't receive the money. They don't hold the money of the premiums. They also just don't decide claims and they don't decide who gets new policies. Once those premiums are paid into that premium pool, when there's a need to pay out a claim, a claim is going to be evaluated, again, by existing policyholders. So you get into an accident, your windshield needs to be replaced. You're going to take a picture of your, your windshield, and you're going to go ahead and attach that picture to your claim. That claim will be sent out to existing policyholders so that they can see your cracked windshield. Then there may be, again, some fraud prevention mechanisms that are unique to the types of problems that you're trying to solve with Autoglass. Once it's understood that you are eligible and that your claim is valid, then the paying out of the claim, that's the process you really want to simplify. When you simplify the paying out of a claim, it's just basically to remove as many variables as you possibly can. And when it comes to Autoglass, you, you, the reason why I chose that example is because pretty much all Autoglass is the same. I mean, unless you're driving a luxury vehicle. So you've gone ahead and excluded luxury vehicles. You pretty much have every single vehicle that's you know going to be 30000 or less. I would say that the cost of replacing Autoglass, regardless of where you're living in the United States, is going to be between... $350 to $400 for a front windshield. That is going to simplify the awards process greatly. The other example that I give in the white paper is it'd be really difficult if you were insured against locusts and locusts come and they eat the farmer's crop. Now, yes, you can verify that there was locusts that were in that area using various oracles. But then the question is, like, how much of the farmer's crop was destroyed? And how much should the farmer be paid to cover the claim for the damage that was caused? You need another layer of fraud prevention in order to decide what's fair, to come to a fair conclusion, not as to the claim award, but to the payment that is made for the claim. It's going to give innovative people solve problems the way they've never been solved before. And that's why this is so exciting. It's not easy, right? Because the types of problems that you're solving, central 
institutions have been doing this for years and they do it very well. You want to move that to a peer-to-peer model, okay, how are you going to do that? It's not readily apparent. Can you move these types of fraud prevention mechanisms and can you resolve these types of questions in a peer-to-peer model? Yes, you can, but you need insight. You need to come up with some kind of revelation that solves problems for specific policies. And that's why the opportunity is just, it's, it's amazing because as soon as you solve that problem, then that solution becomes yours to implement. And yes, it's going to be open source. Other people are going to be able to copy you, but you're going to have first mover advantage. And so different people are going to start to have aha moments where they're like, hey, you can do this in a peer-to-peer fashion and you can, you know, mitigate risk and fraud. And I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. I mean, I'm a voiceover IP engineer. I don't know how to program. If I look at code, I probably cannot read code. But I'm taking a crack at a peer-to-peer insurance DAO. So how did that happen? Basically, I, I just was so interested in the possibilities that I just sat down and I started to brainstorm and work with my friends. And I just said, you know, by God, I'm going to try it. I'm going to see if, if I can do something. That's the type of space that we're entering into. So talk to us about the Dynamis project or company. Where are you? What stage are you at? It sounds like you're kind of at, you're just about finished thinking out the proof of concepts, got a little bit more thinking to do, but, but you're getting pretty close and you have a lot of this stuff uh, already codified into a white paper. So, you know, where, where are you now? What's next? What can people help with? Yes. So I'm at the very beginning. There's no code that has been written. I've gone to the Ethereum community and I've asked for help. Basically said, if there's developers that want to work on this project, let's work together. I just feel very fortunate. I'm very grateful that anybody work with me. I only got one response from my initial inquiry. These are two programmers that can write code in Solidity, which is the language for producing smart contracts. I will need somebody that can write front-end HTML code for this MIS browser, as well as back-end code for, I guess, the JavaScript server, because there's going to be a need to interact with social media profiles the backend server is going to do that and to bring it into the client user interface. I have two programmers so far. I definitely need two additional programmers and it's exciting. So I, I mean, I will tell you that it's, it's about unemployment insurance, which if that sounds crazy, um, it probably is, but there are some really cool things that you can do with unemployment insurance. And I can't reveal too much, but all I can tell you is that it's really exciting. The two people that I have so far are are pretty enthusiastic. Now, maybe I didn't understand what type of a company are you looking to create? Is this an open source project where people are volunteering their time? Are you planning to raise funds? Are you planning to sell equity? I mean, do you have have any of this stuff kind of, you have a plan in mind? I do. So I'm basically going to spend every single dollar I have until I either finish the DAO or I'm bankrupt. I, I, I know that sounds very irresponsible. Might want to get some insurance for that. Yeah, <laughs> good point. I'm passionate about peer-to-peer insurance. It's like we're going back to 1995 and somebody says diamonds.com and I'm like diamonds. What? And then you're like, I need to buy diamonds. No, the domain name diamonds.com. Like one day this domain name will be worth millions of dollars. There was a lot of startups took place at that time and most failed, but ones that were successful, the time, effort, and energy that people invested paid huge dividends. So your question was, um, how am I funding it? I am using um, funds to, to pay the developers. And then they will also be receiving a share of equity as well once the app is 
running in the Mist app store. So I, I'm doing both. But yeah, I mean, these people, they're not going to work for free. I mean, competent people, they deserve to be paid and they will be paid. So if there are some competent people in our audience who think this sounds like a good idea, is there a website set up yet or is there a particular way that they should reach out to you? There's no website. I have a white paper and my email is joshuad31 at yahoo.com. We're at before stage one. The idea is complete and I've kind of worked out several different problems without actually having coded it. And when it's been peer-reviewed by people that understand how Solidity and how smart contract code works, they believe that it's possible, that it's doable. I have a little bit of confidence. Maybe I'm a little bit overconfident. This is ground floor. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Joshua, Andreas, and Adam. This episode was sponsored by Shapeshift.io, the tokenly open source project, and FoldingCoin.net, where you can mine medicine, not hashes. Music for today's episode was provided by Jared Rubens with the LTB theme song, and General Fuzz with today's break music. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.